A visit with former NASA chief scientist Jim Green, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Jim Green headed NASA's Planetary Science Division for an unprecedented 12 years before becoming the agency's chief scientist. Jim and I recently took a look back across his rich and fascinating career. Our complete conversation runs over an hour, so I've only got time to give you a taste of it here. We've got it all in the podcast version of this week's show at planetary.org radio. I'll get to space headlines from the downlink in a couple of minutes. First, though, I have something to share with you. Here's how I express it in a message we've posted for all to see at planetary.org. I had been working at the Planetary Society for two years when co-founder and executive director Lewis Friedman gave me the thumbs up. It was only a few weeks later that Planetary Radio premiered. Lou was my first guest on that November 25, 2002 episode. It also featured what would become a regular visit with our former colleague, Emily Lakdawalla. We closed the show as we have now ended over 1,000 episodes with What's Up. My friend Bruce Betts told us what to look for in the night sky, looked back across the history of space exploration, provided a reverberating random space fact, and offered an entertaining space trivia contest challenge. That show could only be heard on a single radio station and our primitive website. The series has changed very little since then. The most significant upgrade was the addition of our monthly Space Policy Edition six years ago. So, other than a new theme, listeners who had only heard that first episode would have no difficulty recognizing Planetary Radio today. My pride in this achievement is far greater than anything else in my professional life. We're now on the top half percent of podcasts. The broadcast version of each episode is aired by about 100 public stations. We have presented more than 2,000 space exploration leaders to an eager audience. We've gone on stages around the world to present Planetary Radio Live, and I've visited many of our planet's most important and inspiring sites where space science and exploration are advanced. It has been a glorious odyssey, and it's time to step back. I told our wonderful Chief Operating Officer Jennifer Vaughn many months ago that two decades of hosting and producing Planetary Radio would be enough. I'll mark the 20th anniversary in November of this year by handing over the reins to a new host. Our search for this person has already begun. I'm very grateful to know that the Society will still keep me busy. Jennifer and others have asked me to use some of the time I'll reclaim to participate in other important Society work, and I very much hope that my voice will still be heard on Planetary Radio now and then. My greatest joy in this job has always been the opportunity to talk with my guests. I regard all of them as heroes, and I look forward to more conversations. There will be another opportunity to express my gratitude to everyone who has made Planetary Radio a success and a personal joy. For now, I'll simply thank all of you who listen and who have supported the Society so generously. We will keep you informed of our progress toward this transition, I promise that the best is yet to come. Ad Astra.
That's it. As always, you can write to me at Planetary Radio at planetary.org. And now those downlink headlines beginning with the marvelous images from the James Webb Space Telescope. As you'll hear from Jim Green, they now include preliminary studies of Jupiter. Jim will talk about how observations within our solar system were added to the list of targets for the JWST. NASA's Perseverance rover collected its ninth sample from Jezero Crater. This one came from an ancient river delta. And then there's that big rocket that blew up. SpaceX was not planning to ignite or launch the super-heavy booster on the launch pad at its Texas facility, but things happen. We've got more from the July 15 edition of our free newsletter at planetary.org downlink. Jim Green was in Portugal when we met online a few days ago. As you'll hear, he was there to teach in this summer's International Space University session, something he has been doing for many years. This may explain the poor audio quality. It's one of those plan-rad conversations that is so special, I think you'll put up with it. Jim had earlier told me about his days and nights as a grad student at the University of Iowa more than four decades ago. He made me promise, joking of course, that I wouldn't reveal his personal use of what were then supercomputers to run his own simulations and studies during all-night work as a system operator. Jumping forward to today, he was excited to tell me about the ISU class he had just taught in the metaverse. I think, Jim Green, that I can draw a line from 40 years ago or more, I hesitate to say, when you were sitting at keyboards and looking at, you know, physical printouts from those right. Univac uh, supercomputers for the right. time, and and the passion that you're expressing now about this new technology, about teaching in this this metaverse. I'm, I'm, am I right about that? You are. Uh, it's a view that I've always had that computers are there to help us. And anything we can do to leverage them really makes our job easier. I've seen that every time I have uh, put new nodes on NASA's early network to connect to space agencies. We transferred uh, commands over this network. We did testing in chambers. You know, we were doing things like that in the 80s. And then when HTML came along, and this, this means this is the language of the World Wide Web, yeah. teaching that was a no-brainer, you know, where the students then could create their own profiles. And, and now that's ubiquitous, of course. Uh, well, the next version, of course, I think is that virtual reality, the ability for uh, many organizations, uh, and that includes uh, space agencies, not just industries and companies, to have some sort of presence in the, in the metaverse where you can walk in to see their laboratories, see the facilities that are there, you know, where they're soliciting, you know, perhaps instruments to come in and use their facilities to do testing, et cetera, that will end up perhaps on spacecraft or the International Space Station or even that next generation, the commercial stations that are being planned by a number of companies. The time is now. It also strikes me that for people like uh, you and me and uh, some others out there, this is a new and much more immersive way to share that PB&J, that passion, beauty, and joy. 
I, you told me a secret a little while ago about uh, that I shouldn't tell University of Iowa. I will let you in on a secret. Don't share this with my bosses. All right. Okay. <laughs> it is the joy of getting up in front of real people and talking about this stuff that we love. I think right. you feel this too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I've, I've had it for quite a while. Uh, I recognized when I started teaching at the International Space University, you know, teaching wasn't my job at NASA. But I had this passion to tell people what I'm doing. Well, I caught that bug and I did that for, oh, I don't know, 10 years or so as a scientist. And, and then when I had a chance to talk at uh, uh, ISU, I took it and really enjoyed it. There's, there's more evidence of that in the uh, wonderful podcast that you do, Gravity Assist, which I hesitate to talk about because it is a great podcast, which of course makes you competition, but I do recommend it. And we'll put a link to Gravity Thank Assist you. up uh, also on this week's uh, episode page. I hope you'll say something about those 12 years that you spent as the head of the Planetary Science Division. Well, that's probably what I would say is my best moments at NASA having the opportunity to literally help lead the planetary community to new heights. I think over those 12 years, I ushered in a new golden age of exploration yeah, where yeah. we rejuvenated what we were doing at Mars and moved forward with the top things like sample return by, by creating that next set of missions. Also, moving forward with not leaving out the outer planets, you know, starting with Juno and then creating the Clipper mission, which we did, which is another huge step, but also the international connections I made where we're part of the JUICE mission, which is also a, a, a Jupiter mission and doing all kinds of other things around the, around the solar system that is really sparked so much interest in not only the science community, but the general public, like planetary defense. Mm, you know, yes. When I started in 2006 as head of planetary, planetary defense had $4.5 million. We had a congressional mandate to do something from the only one part of, uh, of Congress, and these are uh, the people that are uh, authorizers. We authorize you to do this work. And then the appropriators appropriate money for you to do that. Well, the appropriators didn't give us much money. And so we constantly had to fight an uphill battle, but, but we were slowly successful. We built the budget. I grabbed every resource I could get, you know, as uh, astronomy was ending a mission called WISE, we were able to grab that mission and use it as a pathfinder to demonstrate, and I think clearly demonstrate, the importance of looking for near-Earth objects in the infrared from a space advantage. Because right now, all we do is look for those on ground-based observatories, and that happens to be only at night. Yeah. You know, there's another hemisphere out there that we sort of ignore. So uh, huge steps are, uh, have been taken in making DART happen. DART is our a double asteroid redirect test where we're going to go out and hit a moon of an asteroid and watch its orbit change. And that'll give us an understanding of the size of asteroids, near-Earth objects that uh, if they are a potential threat, how we might be able to move them. And that tells us when we need to be able to do it such that they miss the Earth. All kinds of stuff happened like that. 
And I was quite privileged to be able to have the job for 12 years. Prior to me, on the order of three years was about the average. That's an amazing tenure, 12 years. It is. It'll be a record that'll stand for a while, I'm afraid. <laughs> I bet it will, yeah. And of course, you were talking about Wise becoming neo-Wise uh, with right. our, our, our friend Amy Meinzer, who yes. now is still, we're all looking forward to, you know, there's a high priority for the planetary side as well, toward that neo-surveyor mission. That you bet, me too, policy. me too. You told me an anecdote uh, before we started this that I hope you'll share here as we start to wrap up. And that was about how we came to have this this phrase, seven minutes of terror. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, it was about 2012 when the prospects for the planetary budget looked bleak. Uh, the administration at the time was saying, uh, well, commercial activities like Elon Musk is going to be landing two red dragons on Mars in 2020, and uh, we don't need to have an aggressive Mars program. The concept then of what can we do in this area? Scientists aren't great lobbyists. You know, they're really not. Industry, they'll build an Earth science spacecraft. They don't care if it's planetary or Earth science or whatever it happens to be, so long as they're busy and they're going to be real busy. Hmm. And so I recognized I really needed to talk to the public. I really needed to tell them what they were getting for their money. I needed actually to do that well well before 2012, but it just occurred to me at that time I needed to really amp it up. So I was able to bring in Kristen Erickson, who has a vast knowledge and outreach. And I said, all I want is one thing, is I want you to make sure every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth knows that we're going to land a one-ton rover on Mars. That, that's your job. It sounds easy, right? <laughs> this was curiosity, of course. This was curiosity. Yeah, this was curiosity. So she put in place an enormous number of events. She got a hold of the people that allowed us then to broadcast live in the control room and put that out everywhere in the museums and libraries and even at Times Square. But I have to tell you, my supervisor at the time, Ed Weiler, was pretty concerned that we were doing too much of an outreach activity in this area without really talking about the downsides. And he was right. You know, I wasn't really uh, as a very positive person probably more so than any other division director ever. <laughs> you know, I'm always very positive. Ed would tell me, Jim Green, you know, hope is not a management tool. Well, of course I knew that, you know, I'm not going to hope that it's going to work. It's really based on solid engineering. So I, I really felt good about the landing of it. And if it crashed, it must have been an act of God or something, because we, I think we did everything we could to give it the best shot of landing. But I wasn't telling that story. So I, I mentioned that to Kristen and I said, look, we, we really have to talk about the risks. We don't talk about them much. And soon after that, JPL did a wonderful job bringing in the right people, creating the right concept with the engineers. This is not a science discussion, which is what we usually have. This is an engineering uh, discussion for what it takes to really land a one-ton rover on Mars. And what came out of that was seven minutes of terror. I couldn't be happier. <laughs> yeah. Oh, listen, we were, this was the phrase of the day as thousands of us stood in the Pasadena Convention Center holding our breath, 
waiting through those seven minutes of terror and then jumping up and down, joining everybody at the, in the JPL control room and all those people in Times Square. It could not have been more exciting. And maybe the greatest tribute to the success of that phrase is all the times I've when I talk to other mission leaders since then, and they say, well, this is like our seven minutes of terror, but it's really seven months of terror because that's right. how long it would take, you know, James Webb to unfold or something like that. You definitely, you and Kristen, you sure were on to something there. Well, JPL pulled it together and they were delighted to talk about it because a lot of that fantastic engineering that goes on just doesn't get really uh, discussed in a way that shows how hard it is. Ed Weiler was telling me, you know, well, what happens if it crashes? I said, well, this is a strategic mission. It's my responsibility. Someone's going to get fired, and that's probably me. And he said, yes, that is. You know, if that if that mission crashes, you know, you're going to be you're going to be history. So I was willing to 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 take the chance that uh, it was going to work right because I, I felt we did everything we could possibly do. You know, I interacted with the JPL people all the time. Uh, Doug McQuistian, uh, my Marzar, you know, that's the branch within planetary science that manages all the assets. He was just working night and day uh, uh, with the JPL people. He felt really confident about it. You know, everyone's, everyone's going to know it crashes if, if that's what happens or everyone's going to know it landed safely. And so let's take that journey together. I mean, to me, that just made the most sense. Jim, you are still making history, fortunately for all of us, uh, of the good kind. Um, I got just one other question for you. Now that you have changed your status at NASA, right? I mean, gave up being chief scientist and you told me the next day they made you a senior advisor. Well, what if, what if they came back to you tomorrow and said, Jim, uh, we're going to the moon. We're going to do real science. Uh, we got a mission planned for about five years from now. And um, we just figure with your multidisciplinary background and your enthusiasm, you're the right guy to go to the moon and uh, conduct this research for us. So what, what would you, yes or no, would you say? Well, the answer would be yes. It's <laughs> part of my uh, character. I rarely say no. Uh, some people would say uh, that, that's a character flaw. But I have to tell you, what I have learned by saying yes, even with things that, that, don't sound like the right thing I should be doing, but I learn an enormous amount. And I've always constantly taken that in and applied it. NASA provides so many opportunities to learn so many different things. I was in uh, source evaluation boards and technical advisory groups and things that sound like they, they are just yuck for a scientist. Why would you spend you know, months of your time buried in a room at comparing the requirements against an individual proposal and making decisions right and left? The, the, the reason is we want the best value. We want the best partners. And when we get them, magic happens. This is the government process. I never was afraid about learning the government process and using it. And so consequently, if NASA asked me to go to the moon and uh, interview the, uh, the astronauts that are there and asking them their gravity assist in 1G, I'd do it. <laughs> Jim, I will see you on the moon, I hope, someday, at least in the metaverse moon. I knew it would be a great pleasure. It always is to talk, and, and you certainly have uh, delivered. Thank you for this, and keep up the great work. 
Well, thanks so much, Matt. I really enjoyed your podcast. I listen to it all the time. And I hope everyone continues to do that. Thank you, Jim. That's very nice. My pleasure. Former NASA Chief Scientist Jim Green. Again, you can hear much more from Jim and check out our great links at planetary.org slash radio and where all good podcasts can be heard. Bruce Betts is a minute away here on Planetary Radio. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Hi, this is Kate from the Planetary Society. How does space spark your creativity? We want to hear from you. Whether you make cosmic art, take photos through a telescope, write haikus about the planets, or invent space games for your family, really any creative activity that's space-related, we invite you to share it with us. You can add your work to our collection by emailing it to us at connect at planetary.org. That's connect at planetary.org. Thanks! It's time again for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here is the chief scientist who I referred to up front when I read my my special announcement today, uh, the person who has uh, been heard on all of these uh, episodes of the show and uh, will be hopefully for a long time to come. That's Bruce Betts. Welcome back. Thank you. This is not fair because I don't know what people... When did you... I don't know how mean you were. <laughs> I was oh, nice. Be mean or nice. No, I was nice. I'll be both. I'll Tell be them, both. everyone. I was nice, wasn't I? Yeah, they say I was. Yeah, they're on your side. <laughs> You're a nicer person. <laughs> Matt, don't leave. Sorry. Sorry. Well, Sorry. thank you. Uh, it's it's okay. tough. It's it's very tough. I uh, I love so much of what I do with this uh, with this program, including talking to you every week for What's Up. I love it too, man. <laughs> okay, uh, let's just go on. I should have. I've got a few more months. Hey, so, uh, dude, what's going on up there? Uh, there are four planets that are like super bright, dude. Pre-dawn sky. Uh, actually, Saturn even coming up in the east in the mid-evening now. But in the pre-dawn sky, you can see four planets going from super bright Venus down low by the horizon. And then up to Mars, we're looking reddish, bright Jupiter, and yellowish Saturn in a line. But that line is, continues to spread out across the sky. Uh, here, I got something different for you. If you can find bright reddish Mars over in the east, between July 30th and August 3rd, got some binoculars. Look around reddish Mars. There's a blue dot. It's Uranus. Oh, no kidding. Work better if you find a sky chart and know exactly where to look. But in those days, July 30th, August 3rd, there will be a bluish star-like object that you will need binoculars to see or really good eyes in a really dark sight. I will give it a shot. Thank you. On to this week in space history. Nothing happened this week other than humans landing for the first time on the moon in 1969 and, more significantly, light sail to successfully deploying its solar sail in 2019. This is when you and your colleagues uh, got to start sailing, right? 
Yeah, no, it went from uh, just another CubeSat to uh, the first uh, controlled solar sailing demonstration of a small satellite. We move on to random space fact. Random space fact, random space fact. Scott Kelly, well-known astronaut, almost a year in space, longest time for American at one time. He retired from NASA after 20 years of being an astronaut. Matt Kaplan is retiring as planetary radio host after 20 years. Coincidence? You be the judge. Hey, Scott, I'll be in touch. We, we move on to the trivia contest. I said the following. On Brazil's flag, only one star of the 27 stars is shown above the white band. What star and what Brazilian state does it represent? How do we do, Matt? Biggest response that we've had in quite a long time. So much of it from all over the world, and we'll have some representative samples of that. But first, Dave Fairchild, the uh, Poet Laureate of Planetary Radio out there in Kansas. 27 stars are there upon a globe of blue. It's just about ad astra as a flag is going to do. There's only one above the band. It isn't very cryptic. It's Spica and the Parastape above the white ecliptic. Cool. Nice. Yes, that conveys our correct answers. This is going to be a problem. We heard from several Brazilians, not surprisingly, in response to this question, including Francisco Garcia and uh, Eduardo Quitete. Oh, Lord, my Spanish pronunciation is bad enough. Portuguese, hopeless. Para is a neighbor of the Maranhão state, says Eduardo, where the Alcantara launch site is. And uh, Eduardo added, it's my first space trivia contest. Uh, Eduardo was a longtime listener, Planetary Society member since 1993 or so. And he says, I dare you to speak para like a Brazilian or a Portuguese would. Yeah, I'm not going to pick up that dare, I'm afraid, Eduardo. Yeah, I mean, I got the Spanish thing, but uh, I mean, it took me a while to even remember to acknowledge the accent. So I'm going with para. And I'm going with our winner, a first time winner. <laughs> Jeff Toon in California. Congratulations, Jeff. He said, Spica, which represents the Brazilian state of Para, which is partially in the northern hemisphere in Brazil, which explains why it's above the line. So uh, congratulations, Jeff. You're going to get that copy of Lori Garver's really excellent new book, Escaping Gravity, My Quest to Transform NASA and launch a new space age. There are two other states that are above the equator. They were just made states in 92. So is that why, the, why don't they appear above the band? Beats me. I think it may have to do with why the United States never added a 51st state because it would screw up the flag. The asymmetry would be awful. Yeah, we did hear that from some people that it is not the only state in Brazil that has a portion of it above the equator. Brazilians, let us know. All right, here we go into a different realm. What was the first published scientific work to include telescopic observations of the moon? As a hint, it included drawings. I don't know if that's much of a hint. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Fascinating. You have until the 27th. That'd be uh, July 27 at 8 a.m. Pacific time to... Uh, Get us the answer for this one. And in honor of 
uh, the announcement that I made today, let's give away another kick asteroid, rubber asteroid from the Planetary Society. Then, uh, And uh, it could be yours. We're done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about a caricature of Matt surfing. Thank you, and good night. <laughs> Body surfing. Only tried board surfing once in my life. Didn't like it. Probably shouldn't have used a longboard. I'm, I'm still into that. And I think uh, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, Dr. Bruce Betts, uh, is still, or was at least at one time, uh, a fellow California surfer. He joins us every week here for What's Up? Windsurfing, dude. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members like me. Marco Verda and Ray Paletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.